0: If you think about it this morning, our lives um, really contain successes and failures. And it's our failures that oftentimes leave these defining moments in our lives. These failures, this kind of they just kind of creep in. I mean, failure is inevitable, right? We're all gonna fail at different things in different ways, but it's those failures that just leave these. I don't know, like just these moments along the path of life that are just these defining moments for us. Now think about it this way. All right. Think about when you were a kid, maybe you're in middle school. This is this is true of me. And I tried out for a travel baseball team and I failed to make the team. And I was like, oh my goodness. I started crying. All right. It was just It doesn't feel good. It was a defining moment for me as a young man. I know it sounds so petty, but I'm like, man, I didn't make the team. I remember crying. My dad was like, "Why are you crying?" I was like, "I didn't make the team, Dad." He's like, "There's no crying in baseball, you know." I'm like, "Dang, Dad. Okay, now I got a dad wound." All right. Um, But in that, you know, you fail to do that, or or maybe um, you you went to college and you you spent four, five, six, seven, eight years in college. Who knows? I'm not judging. Okay. And you leave with this um, degree. You're going to pick your career that you've worked so hard for. And it's really a failed career choice that you, you spend all this time and money in college. And then you go and you try to do different jobs in that same kind of area. And before you know it, you're not satisfied with any of your jobs. And practically speaking, you can't pay your bills with that job. And so you have a failed career choice. Or, or maybe, you know, you, you leave college, you're, you're in job, whatever, and you kind of just go along the rat race of things. And before you know it, you've really failed to budget your finances properly. And so you're just in this constant circle of, hey, I, I'm in a lot of debt. And I feel like I, can, I can't get ahead of this. I'm, it's like two steps forward, one step back. I feel like it defines my life. And then what happens is that debt, whether it's student loans or credit cards or whatever, it ends up creeping into your marriage, right? And you start arguing and like the things that you fight about the most are money. And so those things happen. And so you, you have failed at your finances. Or maybe you made a, fail, a bad business decision and it has failed. It blew up in your face. Or maybe some of you, you you've considered you, you had a failed marriage. Or maybe you have older kids and you feel like you have failed as a parent to connect with your adult children. Or let's be, let's be real transparent that for many of us, you just maybe feel like a failure overall. I can't tell you how many times I counsel people and they're just like, I'm just a big screw-up. I fail at everything. And really, if you think about it, those things are defining moments in our life. And we can respond in a couple different ways. We can fall into the trap or just buy into enemy's lies and saying, you know what? I am a failure. And it can go down this path of depression or, you know, toxi- toxicity and just saying, okay, I'm a nobody. I'm a failure. I'm always going to screw something up. I can never get anything right and just buy into that. Or you can, in those moments of failure, really learn from those mistakes. Now, I know that sounds like the cliche, like, learn from your mistakes, get back up when you get knocked down, and whatever other meme you want to put, you know, out there. But it's so true. When you're faced with those things, and we're going to be faced with them, how do we respond and thankfully, by God's grace, we have the opportunity to not be defined by those failures, but to say, I'm going to learn from this mistake, and I'm going to learn, not that I, I hope I don't make the same mistake twice, but I'm going to learn from it so I don't make that mistake again. Are you following me? And so, so often, those failures are these defining moments. Like, for instance, okay, for me, you know my story. My parents got divorced when I was 16, now, while it wasn't my failure, their failed marriage was a defining moment in my life. And so we have things along the way that, that are, are, are these things, and this, we try to cope with them, we try to respond to them, all this other stuff. But if you think about it, as we're walking through this story of David, what we're going to look about, if you know the story of David, you know where I'm going, is probably the most tragic failure of all of Scripture. And really, it's a significant moment for the life of David, who has been crowned king. Everything is going great. And he makes a stupid decision, and he falls prey to sin and his own desires. And he could either be um, just crumble and just let this mark him and define him for the rest of his life, or he could sit there and learn from it. But at the end of the day, what I hope that we see from this story it really is a significant thing for all of us, is that we all need Jesus. Amen? We all need Jesus. We're all failures. Now, I know you're like, "Well, wow, that's real encouraging, Dustin. Thanks for church, you know? Like, this isn't like, oh, you're going to prosper. Everybody's going to live a lovely life, you know? You know, put your mind to it, and you can do it, all right? Well, that, those things, okay, God will bring you blessings and stuff like that. But let's be honest. We're not perfect, We're going to fail at things. And some things are going to be bigger than others. And sometimes we're going to beat ourselves up more than to other times. But at the end of the day, we need Jesus. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a King that's bigger than all of that, uh, who's bigger than our emotions, who's bigger than our depression, who's bigger than our failures, who can restore and redeem us through His grace. So I hope that you see that in this story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, all right? We're going to be in Second Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 11, but let me give you kind of some, some front-end story of what's taking place. So if you remember, if you've been walking along, Reader's Digest version, uh, David as a teenager, a shepherd boy, is, a, is anointed king, the first king of Israel, Saul, was corrupt. He um, lacked integrity, made some really bad decisions. And at the end of his fall, God told him to do something, and he blatantly disobeyed God. So God said, hey, I'm removing my hand from you, and I'm going to anoint another king. Well, David was that king's shepherd boy. He had to wait approximately 17 years to be crowned king. Well, in the meantime, God's preparing him for this, and uh, he ends up, Killing Goliath becomes this huge warrior. He's famous amongst all of Israel for killing this Philistine giant. And he's coming back, and they're like, Hercules, Hercules! Not like that, okay? But they're so excited that, that David has beat Goliath, and he comes to fame, and he marries Saul's daughter. Saul puts him in charge of an army. Then it's like, I'm gonna kill him because he was jealous. So David's fleeing for about eight or nine years. And he's fleeing. He spares Saul his life. Could, could have killed him, all this other stuff. And Saul says, surely you're king. So eventually what takes place is Saul and three of his sons go to battle with the Philistines again, this vicious opponent. And Saul and his three sons die. And David becomes the king. So he's, a finally, he's finally appointed king. Now, historically speaking, at this time, Israel was really divided up into two different nations. You had the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, which is what King David uh, reigned over, and he had a general of his army named Joab. Now, the northern kingdom, kingdom was Israel, and uh, it, uh, it, Ish-bosheth, I'm going to get that right, was the leader of that, and a guy named Abner was the general of his army, and he was a pretty bad dude. Well, King David wanted it all. He wanted to unite and be king over everything. So his general, Joab, went and killed the other general, Abner, killed him, took over, and now David is king over the entire nation of Israel. So now as king, for really like the first 13 years or so, everything's going really good. I mean, he's a great warrior. He's winning battles left and right. If people threaten God's people, um, the Israelites, man, he's winning these wars and winning these battles. Everything's going good, but we see in Scripture, people are thinking, man, he's a guy after, he's a guy after God's own heart. He, he, he's following God. We saw that with Saul. We're seeing it now. He even talks about building a temple for God. So it's like, man, that's a good guy. Well, after the 13 years, what we're going to see this morning is that eventually his, his power as king and his pride as king finally catch up to him And he makes this significant failure in his life. And with this, I'm just going to say this, he took his eyes off of God. It was all about himself. And if you really think about pride, pride blocks out who God is because we are in the way. Who we are is in the way of truly seeing God. This is what pride does. Think about it. When you're thinking all about yourself, your circumstances, your desires, your wants, your needs, all this other stuff, when that is right in front of your face, you can't see God. You can't see his plan. You can't hear his voice. You can't see him trying to do stuff because all you can are consumed with is yourself because it's right in front of you. And that's what pride does. David was in this moment where all he wanted to see was himself. And so he gave in to his own pride, and he forgot and lost sight of exactly who God was, what He had brought David through, and all of a sudden David makes a selfish, dumb, stupid decision—all the other adjectives. Okay, so let's let's read this together. This is Second Samuel. We're gonna kind of—I'm gonna read some and tell some and all that kind of stuff because it's all chapter eleven and twelve where we see this story. Chapter eleven starting in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, here's the first problem. David, as a king, culturally speaking, should have went to the battlefield. Now, maybe he wasn't on the front lines, but he would have set up shop in a tent somewhere and as king, be a strategist to say, hey, this is what you need to do. Go attack. Even as David, at this point, him being there would have been intimidating to the other opponent. To the opposition, they would have been like, oh, King David, they could have ran. But David decided, I don't want to be a warrior. Let's go around. And so I'm just going to stay back. I'm not going to go to the battle I'm going to choose to be here. And I love the writer's like, in the time where the kings went to battle, David decided to stay home. <laughs> He's like, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. You know, let's let them go and fight it out. Now listen to what happens. Verse 2. It happened. I love the writer. It. Okay, so something's about to take place. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. I mean, he's like watching Netflix. (laughs) Like, what is he doing? Like, think about this. As a king, your nation is at war or in a battle. Your your fellow soldiers who you command are out there fighting a battle for you. And culturally speaking, you're like, nah, I'm not going to sit this one out. And he's on the couch. Like, is he eating like Cheeto puffs? Like, what is he doing in this moment that he has to, he's like, I'm just going to get up on the couch. I'm bored. You know, I'm bored. It says, so he gets up from the couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He needed to get some fresh air. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So, we know where this is going, and we're gonna read the rest of the story, but think about this. David wasn't where he was supposed to be, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And he gets out on the roof, and he sees this lady who is bathing. Now, her name is Bathsheba, we're gonna see that. Now, and I think it's kind of interesting. Isn't it interesting that her name has the word bath in it? I just think that's interesting, okay? I don't know why, I think that's funny. Maybe I'm just not intellectual, but I just think that's, you know, interesting. But her name is Bathsheba, all right? And he sees her, and he says that she is beautiful. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily, I can't think of any other time, to be honest, where the Bible, like, rates women, like, this one's hot, this one's not. Okay, that's just not how the Bible works. But the word beautiful here is very dynamic because in the original Hebrew, the word beautiful is actually tobe, And it means, like, fine. Like, fine, fine. Like, you fine, girl. Okay, that's what this means. Like, it's not like, oh, it's kind of pretty. It means, like, hey, girl, you fine. Like, she is some kind of different level of hotness, all right? You know it's hot because the Hebrew word is tobe. It has bay in it, all right? So it's like, hey, bay? That's my bay, all right? And so David sees her, and she's bathing herself. And so as... Probably any, I'm just throwing this out there, okay. Guy sees a naked woman, he's like, hello. And he's like, what's going on down there? And sees this naked lady or in the south, naked, okay, sees her bathing. And in this moment, here's the first point that we see temptation is present. That's so true of our lives too. You don't have to be a king of Israel for temptation to be present. It was, it was present there. He walks out on the roof. He's where he's not supposed to be, doing what he's not supposed to be doing. And in his boredom comes across this woman bathing named Bathsheba on the roof. The temptation is there. But let's think about our lives. Well, we're not David and we're not some Old Testament character, but in our lives we face temptation every day. You can have a little white lie about this at work. You can not share the full truth with your spouse. You could see something on the internet and kind of went down a rabbit hole, and you're just not, not going to say anything about it. You could, you could steal something. You, you could hide something instead of confessing. You could look on the internet, and no one would ever know about what you looked at. There's, I mean, we could sit here all day. Temptation is present in our lives. It's there. And whether you struggle with lust or alcohol or drugs or truth-telling or being a person of integrity, whatever, temptation is present. And here's the awful thing about temptation. It doesn't have favorites. It doesn't pick and choose. Oh, I think I'll mess with this person today. It's there for all of us. Every day we're faced with temptation. Temptation. And David, as this king, he is faced with a choice. How am I going to fight this temptation? And that's a question you and I have to wrestle with every day. How am I going to fight temptation? We cannot sit back and be reactive to temptation. We have to be proactive against it. And David was reactive in this. Listen to what he does. And So David, uh, verse um, 3, David sent... And inquired about the woman, and one said, "Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" Now let me just kind of throw this out there: the writer specifically, like, humanizes Bathsheba, and to really point that she's a human, she's a daughter, she she's a wife. Because I'm just going to throw this out there for what it's worth: if you think about sexual sin, it often, if not all the time, objectifies the the person on the other end. Pornography objectifies the woman or the man on the other end to say, oh, it's just a vehicle to my pleasure. And so the writer is making it very clear. This is a daughter. This is a wife. Not just some vehicle to your temptation. It's a person. And so face or or deal with whatever you're about to do. Make your decision wisely. And listen to what David says. He says, so David sent his messengers and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and she told David, I am pregnant. I mean, if this was Mari Povich, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, it'd be like, the results are in. You are the father, okay? I mean, David's like, okay, what did I just do? But to be honest, he's really not like that. Because what we see here, point two, is that sin has consequences. You and I know that. You don't have to go to church to know that. Sin has consequences, If I lie to my wife, there's going to be consequences. If I cheat on my spouse, there's going to be consequences. If I steal from a store, there's going to be consequences. Now, I I, I firmly believe this. Sin is sin. But I do believe that especially with sexual sin, the consequences are greater. I I could lie on on a test. I could steal a candy bar and be like, I'm so sorry, okay, okay but if I was to cheat on my wife, the consequences would be greater. It would affect my kids and my kids' kids, because I'm just going to tell you, coming as a byproduct of a divorced family on both sides, I mean, it has ramifications. And then I'm not saying that to bring any kind of shame or guilt. I'm just, we all know that. Whether you've been divorced or whatever, or whatever the case may be, sin has consequences. Our failures have consequences. And so what we're going to see is that David's sin has consequences. And if you really think about sin, or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like the biggest sinner in this room. Oftentimes, when in sin, we usually attempt to cover up sin with more sin. Think about that. You tell a little lie and you get busted in that lie. And I was like, let me lie to cover up the lie. And then before you know it, you're just, it's, a, it's a train wreck. And you're just a pathological liar about things. And no one teaches us this. It's in our DNA as sinners. I, mean, th- I can't tell you how many times as a parent, and I always try to be careful because my kids aren't here this morning. I never want them to be like, Dad, you just like aired out my dirty laundry, okay? But kids are kids. And you catch them in a lie, and they lie to cover up that lie, and they lie about that lie. And then before you know it, like, me and Sloan, Sloan's like the best. Like, she shouldn't have been an attorney, okay? Because, like, I'm telling you, she sniffs that junk out real quick. And I'm like, okay, I'm an idiot, okay? I fall for it as dad because I just want to be a good time. But, like, she's like, no, that's a lie, you know, and, and like, snuffs it out. And then they finally like, okay, I confess. But think about it. We, we just cover up sin with more sin, and that's exactly what David does. So this is what David does. If you don't know the story... David finds out that she's pregnant. He's like, man, I got to scheme some things. So how could I? You know what? Let me get her husband to come off the battlefield. And and he's been gone for who who knows how long. And they're going to miss each other. And they'll have sex. And then she'll be pregnant. And they'll all go away and disappear. So he sends a message to Joab, the general, says, hey, why don't you send Uriah? Uriah comes back. And it's like, Uriah, come here, bud. You've been working so hard out there in the battlefield. Hey, why don't you go spend some time with your wife? You deserve it. Well, he goes, and word gets back the next day that Uriah did not sleep with his wife. He decided that he was going to sleep outside the door of his house. So word got back, and David confronts him. He's like, Uriah, why didn't you do that? And he's like, man, I can't do that. All all my friends, my fellow members of the army, they're sleeping in tents on the ground. I'm not going to do that and we're still at war. I want to sleep right here. He goes, I'll I'll have time for that (laughs) later. And so then, David, if that wasn't enough, some more sin. You know what? Why don't you come to my house, man? Eat all. This is the the king's palace. Eat whatever you want. See that wine over there, man? Drink as much. It's open bar. (laughs) Get wasted. Then go sleep with her. So he tries to get him drunk, and he still won't go. So then David takes it a step further. Think about this. The same guy that was like, who defies the armies of the living God to Goliath is now scheming and now says, okay, I'm going to write this letter. And on this letter, I'm telling my general, hey, Joab, I need you to put Uriah the Hittite on the front lines and he needs to die. Writes the letter, seals it up gives it to Uriah, and says, I want you to deliver this to Joab. I mean, think about this. Joab's probably thinking, this is going to be a letter of encouragement, okay, pen pals, all right, that it's like, hey, you're doing such such a great job. Keep it up. It's his death sentence. So he hands it to Joab. Joab reads it. It's like, okay, puts Uriah on the front lines, and Uriah is killed. Now, David thinks that his plan is going to come back, and he's going to look like the hero, Oh, come here in your grief, you know, Bathsheba, come be with me, come into the kingdom, let me play rescuer in this, and then you'll have a child. Everybody's like, oh, it's okay. Well, what we see in verse 26 and 27, I'm going to read this. It'll be on the screen. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, um, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. Now listen to this defining moment. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Man, that's a dangerous place to be. I don't know about you, but if I'm ever like there's someone ever going to write any kind of book about me, I don't want that statement in there associated with my name. And what David had done, he took his eyes off of God and let his pride just get the best of him and his sin has consequences. Now we won't talk we won't read this, but we end up seeing the son dies. We see later in the story that David actually has another son that rapes a half sister and then is killed by a uh, a person seeking revenge. We'll see actually next week he has another son Absalom who actually is like all you care about is is your kingdom dad. So I'm going to I'm going to overthrow you and tries to steal his kingdom. So there's all this family drama that's because sin has consequences. But here's the third point this morning accountability is necessary. Accountability is necessary. We need accountability in our lives. And what we're going to see is that this guy named Nathan, he's a prophet. And I love this because Nathan, he doesn't care that David is king. He's like, I'm a prophet, bro. I'm hearing directly from God. And he goes to King, to the king, uh, king David and says, let me tell you a little story. Now, there's this rich man and a poor man. They live in the same town. The the rich man, man, he's got all kind of flocks of animals and tons of sheep and lamb and goats and everything. He's got everything. But this poor guy, he's got one lamb. And he treats it. Scripture says this. He treats it like a daughter. Now, that's a little weird to me. But some of you are cat lovers, and you do that too. That's weird, okay? I love dogs. You know that, Okay. (laughs) And so he has this sheep that he treats like a daughter. It says, it eats at our table out of the same bowl and the same cup. And it it all lives in the house and everything. It's his pride and joy. He has one of them. The rich guy, he has all this. He doesn't care. And and he tells the story. A traveler comes in and the rich guy says, I'm not, it says, he's not willing to sacrifice one of his animals to provide food for the traveler. So what does he do? Like a jerk. He goes to the poor man. He steals that one lamb that he treats like a daughter and kills it and feeds this traveler with that food. So David hears this story that Nathan's telling. And listen to how David responds. This is in chapter 12, verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, um, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. It's pretty much, he's pretty much saying, I swear, as God reigns, that guy deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan calls David's butt out and says, you are this man. That's some strong words. He says, you are this man. And he says, here's what the Lord says. Remember, he's a man of God's word. The Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that was too little, I would add more. But why have you despised the word of the Lord? And to do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house." Man, sin has consequences, but accountability is necessary. You and I need that accountability. We need people in our lives. This is the beauty of small group. We need people to say, hey, that doesn't honor the Lord. Hey, you're wrong in that. In a loving way, say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Now, I'm going to be very transparent, and I'm, I'm going to close in just a second. When I was in fifth grade, I'll never forget this, okay? Okay. When I was in fifth grade, I found my dad's porn collection, and I entered into a journey that I never thought I would, I would be a part of. Being addicted to porn in middle school, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 14, but it was still a struggle. I'd go off to college where there's zero accountability, still a problem. I went off to University of Tennessee for a year. I was like, man, it was like It was just horrible. I come home, and I remember sitting at a pizza place with some of my best buds, and one of the—he was the best man at my wedding. My best friend John was with us, and God—I don't know if you've ever had these moments. God was like, "You need to share this struggle. You just need to share it." And oftentimes, in the things that we struggle with, we we feel—and this is the devil's tools—we feel shame to share with people. Hey, I'm dealing with depression. Hey, I'm dealing with this with my kids. Hey, I'm dealing with this personally. And and so what we do is we keep it inside and it just eats at us. Well, it was one of those moments where God was like, you need to share this. So I just shared with this group of guys. I was so scared. Have you ever had this moment? Like my hands were shaking, my heart was beating. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be kicked out of church for this, okay? And I just tell them, hey guys, I've been struggling with a porn addiction. And I'll never forget, man, I'm so thankful. Those guys... Because of this accountability, said, "Hey, man, we're right here with you, and we're going to be proactive in fighting this." And and so they walked with me. They just disappeared. No, but I'm so thankful that over the course of probably two and a half years, it no longer became a struggle because we were proactive in fighting that temptation. I had accountability. We need that as believers. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and say, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this because God told me to. And I'm like, "That's not, how, God didn't tell you to do that because it's not holy. Well, I'm like, have you, have you asked other believers? No, no, they'll just judge me. am like, no, there's wisdom in that. There's accountability in that. And that is so huge. And then last, restoration is available. We see in this after. Nathan confronts David. David says this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Restoration is available. But it all comes, restoration comes when sin is acknowledged and we wholeheartedly confess. Then we say, hey, I'm a screw up. Man, I got sin in my life and God, I'm coming to you and I acknowledge the sin in my life and I confess it. It's it's a two-part formula. It can't just be like, I am a sinner. That felt really bad. I shouldn't have done that. It's confession to God too. Hey, God, I'm confessing this. It's it's almost like, have you ever had your kids, they're like, I'm sorry, (laughs) and they don't really apologize because they really don't understand the weight of it, in our lives with God, we should be coming to God and saying, God, I confess, I acknowledge this sin. And really, this should be a cycle for every follower of Christ to say constantly, man, I messed up today. I'm sorry, and I confess my sin. But if you're here this morning, and you've never had that moment, that defining moment, where you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've never acknowledged, hey, My sin separates me from God. He's perfect. I'm not. And I need Jesus. And so I acknowledge that sin. I confess that sin and my desire and my need for him. Man, I hope that today is that day. You can come talk to me down front. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our leaders. You can can call me. Whatever. We'll talk through that. That is a huge moment. David recognized in this. I'm not going to let that failure just define me for the rest of my life. I'm going to confess it. I acknowledge it. I'm going to confess it. And by the grace of God, we're going to move on. And we're going to see what God and how he restores my life. When we see that, that actually happens. We see that actually, and we've said this before, Jesus comes from the line of David. And so if God can restore David and his failure, he can restore any of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for being an incredible God that does offer grace, even in the midst of failure and of shame and guilt. And many of us, even this morning, we feel like a failure. Failure as a parent, failure as a husband or a wife, mom or dad, failure at our jobs and our careers. But Father, let us look to you, not to the things of this world, but to look to you and to confess where we have failed, to acknowledge that sin and just to pursue you with everything that we have. And the person that's here this morning that's never had that moment, I pray that today is the day you've been stirring stirring in their hearts this morning. Let, Let them hear your voice loud and clear right now with no shame to say, I need a relationship with you. And God, restore their hearts, restore their souls because you are the ultimate hope. You're the ultimate thing that we can't put our success in the things of this world. We need to put it in you you're the hope. When we fail, we need to look to you. When we succeed, we look to you. So God, let everything that we do look to you as our greatest hope. And in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and close and worship together.